So greetings to anyone who's just joined us online. If you're new to Heart City Church, I'm Joel and I welcome you. Um, I actually began a master's level class in clinical pastoral education last week. It's a fun program minus one issue. It's in part a psych class, which actually jogged a memory for me. I remember a college psychology class that was a true trial. It was one of the most difficult college classes I ever took. Very challenging. I remember one day some upperclassmen in the psych grad program came to our class asking for volunteers to participate in a series of psych texts psych tests for their research. Now they were aware that having our brains probed would require some incentive, so they offered us both cash and extra credit for our class. And my first thought was that this was probably why the professor made this class so difficult. You know, poor grades would grease the skids to help our willingness to become guinea pigs for the psych grad program. I want us to imagine if the psych grad class would show up here tonight and they would say, hey, may we do a word association study with you guys? Where they would give us, you know, a word and we say the very first thing that comes to mind. So they begin the tests. But after only three questions, they get frowns on their face, they huddle up, and then they walk out of the room. After a few minutes, one of them comes back in with a clipboard and she addresses us and she says, we're just totally baffled by you guys. We said the word Lord, and you said the word Jesus. So we just naturally figured, oh, well, these are Christians. That makes sense. But then we said the word testing, and you made the association steadfastness. Now, this was confusing, but we still had a few working theories. But then we threw at you the word trials, and the response you left us gave us, left us stupefied because you said joy. You've got to help us out. What is the connection between the word trials and joy? What are we missing? And with that, we all begin to smile, right? Because unbeknownst to them, we have been in James chapter 1, a letter which begins with the explanation of how the Christian is able to rejoice in trials. We're going to reread the first four verses from last time. I invite you to turn there in James 1. And we're going to consider, as I said earlier, what follows in verses 5 to 8. As a review, I'm going to say last time we saw that trials in this life are perpetual and problematic. But paradoxically, for the believer, they are purposeful because they're about producing perfection. God gives us trials in order to make us perfect like our Lord Jesus. That's why we can count it all joy in trials. And today, James is going to give us his next imperative, and yes, we'll use another P. We are to be prayerful. Now, it is not surprising that we are to be prayerful, but what we're to be prayerful for, I think, is. Now, hear the word of our God from James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, grant us right now in this short time we have that wisdom from above that is first pure, then peaceable, that's gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, that we might leave here and sow a harvest of righteousness and peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So think of a trial that you found yourself in. I mean a real trial, a situation that rocked you, maybe wrecked you. Perhaps it's something recent, maybe something from childhood. Perhaps it's happening to you right now. What sort of feelings did you have? Sadness, anger, isolation, pain, anxiety? What were your thoughts? How could this happen? Why me? How long? Are you remembering what it was like to be in that trial? Now let me ask you this. When you were in the middle of that trial, what was it that you thought or felt you were lacking at that moment? We turn to God for help when trials come, right? What was it that you were asking God for? Peace? Relief? Comfort? Joy? Maybe an end to the trial? Did any of us want first and foremost wisdom? God, I need wisdom more than anything right now. After telling us about the trials that we're going to face, James says we are first to pray for wisdom. Do you find that shocking? I do. Number one on James' prayer list, when you're in the middle of trials, when you're being rocked, is wisdom. I think that tells us something. Now, it is okay to ask God to remove the trial. But here's the thing, and are you listening? We shouldn't expect it, that God will remove the trial. Because James just said he's using these trials to make us perfect and complete, like Jesus who went through trials in his life, on his earthly life. Jesus ended up taking up the cross. So we are also in trials to see these as the cross God often gives as we follow Jesus to glory. I think that makes sense of James' very first command to count it all joy in trials, don't you? I want to read, just to review, this wonderful message paraphrase. Here's verses 2 to 4 again. Eugene Peterson writes, Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you at all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. James views our trials even multi-sided nightmares that come at you 
It's a sheer gift to rejoice in. Now remember, James is writing to folks in the dispersion, Christians who are cast out from Jerusalem, people who've lost everything, forced to flee. Can you imagine what would be going through their minds? I mean, think of the people who had to leave Florida recently or Ukraine. They've had their entire world rocked. I mean, it'd be one thing if they simply lost their job or maybe they had a bad crop. Makes sense to say, hey, cheer up, it'll get better. I mean, joy is doable when someone dents your car, right? Maybe your computer crashes or you get sick. There are bumps in the road, we get that. But James also includes those dark disasters that no one would ever choose to embrace. Paul Tripp says, well, God takes you to places that you would not go on your own to produce change in you that you would not find any other way. God is at work in trials. They are gifts from him. So we can pray that God remove them, but we should not expect that he will answer because he's using trials to produce changes in us that he knows are for our best. But this is what we need to see. We can expect God to always answer one prayer. That's what James is showing us. There's something that he's always going to deliver on. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives graciously to all, generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given to him. I find that to be good news. The good news in your trials is you can ask God for wisdom, and he is generous to anyone and never holds back for any reason. And yes, this promise of wisdom is connected to our trials. There's a connector word. You see, lacking in nothing, and then if any of you lacks wisdom, that word lack. James is not changing subjects here, you see. What he's doing is he's actually moving us from knowledge to wisdom. I mean, it's one thing to trust trials are for our good and to rejoice. Knowing, verse 3, you know this, that the testing of our faith is going to make us more like Christ. But here's the thing. Knowledge sometimes is not enough to face certain trials that we can make absolutely no sense of. Over 50 years ago, a young Joni Erickson Tata, I know some of you have heard of hers, she dove into Chesapeake Bay, not realizing how shallow that water was. She ended up paralyzed from her neck down at age 17. Imagine having your whole life in front of you and having it suddenly snatched away. What if James stopped at verse 4? That'd be rough for Joni. James knows that knowledge is not enough. We need wisdom, God-given discernment, because life in a broken world requires more than knowledge. I think we should get that by now, because we live in a knowledge culture. There's more information available to us than any time in human history. Is our unmatched wealth of knowledge producing unmatched joy or unmatched flourishing in our day? Not at all. Knowledge does nothing to help morality, living rightly in God's world. We have folks with titanium craniums, all the knowledge in the world, and they use it for evil, don't they? James says we need wisdom, which is in serious lack in our culture. But not just in our culture, I would argue in our churches. I was actually reading an article last week on the church's neglect of Bible wisdom books. And I fall in that category. I've been preaching 10 years. And this is, James is the first wisdom book I've ever preached through that I'm endeavoring to do. 
Listen to Zach S. Wine, how he comments on how many Christians have grown up in the popular parts of the Bible. They know him well, but the wisdom highways are less traveled. This is good. The Song of Solomon is like a back road brothel to us. Job is like a long stretch of desert road with no nightlight and no gas stations or no rest stops for miles. Ecclesiastes sounds like a crazed man downtown. He smells like he hasn't bathed, looks like it too. And as we pass by, he won't stop glaring at us and beckoning us that our lives are built on an illusion and that we're all going to die. So most of us choose to get our lunch at a different shop on a less dreary corner of town. James is like an old law building that doesn't seem to fit the gospel landscape. We drive around it and wonder if we should bulldoze it. If you're a Christian and you've actually read through James, have you ever wanted to just take a wrecking ball to it or at least hide it behind some trees so you don't notice it as much in the middle of the gospel landscape? Even Martin Luther did. James is a challenge because it is the New Testament wisdom book teaching us how to understand life in the time between Christ's resurrection and his return. And attaining wisdom requires prayer, time, and a lot of thoughtfulness. I think uh, many people approach James as a practical book because of all the commands. We noted there's 59 of them. They see the primary theme of James as revealing the faith that works. And I do agree, this is a notable theme. But I don't think the thread that pulls through the book is the faith that works, but rather the wisdom from above that results in doing God's will. The wisdom from above that results in doing God's will. I want us to keep that in mind as we go through James, because I believe these wisdom goggles that James is giving us helps us to see all of life is actually serving God's purposes. So here's the question, what is wisdom? Well, James tells us that true wisdom comes down from above, chapter 3, and in the end it makes for peace. So wisdom is, number one, connected to God. Proverbs 9 tells us, I think it's verse 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So number one, this means that wisdom is realization that you live all of your days on earth, quorum deo. You live your whole life before the face of the creator of the cosmos. We were talking earlier about Kevin Young's book, and he talked about how his two-year-old boy, he would had this camera that he put on. He couldn't figure out why his two-year-old boy slept in two hours later than every other child he had until he put the camera in on him to watch him. And he realized his two-year-old boy stayed up two hours extra every night after he put him to bed. We need to realize that God has a camera on us at all times. He's watching us. And yeah, that ought to make you tremble. <laughs> and now in Christ, the wisdom of God has come earthside. Wisdom is a person, 1 Corinthians 1.30. And Jesus' cross seems like foolishness to the world, but it reveals the wisdom of God. So yes, when we stand at the foot of the cross, where Almighty God died and we see what it took to deal with our sin and shame, that too ought to cause us to tremble, 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 as the old hymn says. So first, it's 
related to understanding that God, everything is done before the face of God. Wisdom is secondly, it's actually embedded in creation. Proverbs three nineteen to 20 says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. So wisdom is secondly, recognizing the order of God's world and learning to live according to that order, accepting human boundaries and limits. And then third, lastly, wisdom is about God's righteousness. There is a wisdom from below. James will talk about that in chapter 3. It looks like wisdom, but it's not. The only way to tell the difference is we have to become like the Psalms one man who spends time day and night meditating on God's word, taking it in, learning to live and trusting that this is going to show us how we can live righteously and how we can gain God-given discernment. Over time, it helps us to develop expertise, to live well before God in a complicated, fallen world. And James assumes none of us have arrived. The If any of you, it has to be tongue-in-cheek here because, let's be honest, we all lack wisdom. So what James wants us to see about wisdom in this time before our perfection is this. Wisdom for us is not the ability to make perfect decisions, but growing deeper in trust of God as we learn to live obediently to his revealed will. It is maturation. I want us to see wisdom is less a principle to master, and it's more a mover towards perfection because wisdom is a person, Jesus Christ. We want to be drawing near to him. So the first rung on the wisdom ladder is grasping that we are lacking. We have to see we lack it, that we're finite, we're limited. We recently talked about finitude in our Sabbath series, that God made us with limits. As creatures, that's not a bad thing. God declared finite humans after he made us very good. Humility was a pre-fall condition. Humility that we lack wisdom is step number one. It's the first rung of the ladder in order to get it because then we can pray to God. And this is so encouraging because the second rung is seeing the largeness of our God, that he is so very generous. J.I. Packer writes that sometimes we struggle in prayer because we don't actually capture a vision of how great God is. J.I. Packer writes, the vitality of prayer lies largely in the vision of God that prompts it. Drab thoughts of God make prayer dull. And this verse here tells us so much about God and his generous character, how large he is and how he wants to give it. James says, our large God gives liberally to those who lack. The word for generous here is the Greek word haplos. And generous is good, but this word carries a whole lot more freight with it. It carries with it a sense of singleness, sincerity. In other words, God is saying, James is saying, God is never two-faced, never two-faced with us. He is a giving God who is without guile and always loyal to every promise he has given. Now, I want us to hold that thought of God's sincerity, his loyalty, because it's going to help us with the next verses. Hold that thought. But I don't want to miss out that also God gives without reproach, graciously. Friends, you do not understand the gospel if you don't understand that God is one who does not hold reproach against those who come to him. For God not to have reproach means that God never holds your past against you when you turn to him in faith and repentance. 
The devil likes to tell us, oh, you're too far gone, Joel. No way. Or you're going to have to suffer for a while for your past sins before God will finally let you get to that level where he'll help you out. Mm -mm. No, friend, that is not the gospel. God gives graciously, James says here, wisdom from above without reproach. All you have to do is, verse 6, here it is. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let me ask you this. Do any of you have faith in God's goodness, but you still struggle with doubts when you start to pray? I grew up in churches that said you simply have to have enough faith. Pastor said, well, if you don't get your blessing or your healing, it's your fault for not having enough faith for doubting too much. That's the prosperity gospel. It's really convenient how it works, you know. They suck you in with their promises. And then if it doesn't happen, it's never the prosperity preacher's fault. <laughs> they love to quote James as their proof text. Oh, you just didn't have enough faith. Friends, if you misunderstand James here, this is going to throw you right into the slew to spawn. James uses a Greek word here that does not mean doubt generically. So don't despair. If you believe, you trust, but you still struggle with doubts. Friends, even today, I often struggle with doubt before I pray, after I pray, while I pray. <laughs> And I used to think that because I struggle with doubt, oh, I'm double-minded. No, no, no. I would pray really hard. You know, try really hard. Oh, God, why is my prayer? And many times God didn't. And I was like, oh, I just didn't believe enough. I didn't receive from the Lord because I was unstable. I didn't have enough faith. And I got discouraged about praying. Any of you ever felt that way? Yeah. That's not what James is saying here. Remember, James just said our giving God, he gives and he's single-minded. He's never two-faced. That's how we're to be. That's the expectation here. We're to be devoted to God and not two-faced. The Greek word here for doubt means divided or wavering between two opinions. And James means in your commitment, loyalty to God. It's like a wave of the sea, back and forth. Oh, the world's breeze is just fine today, so I head this way. Oh, I have a problem. Oh, I'm moving back to God because uh, he's a great helper. I'm unstable. I'm serving two masters. To be double-minded is to love the world and all its pleasures and fun and only to see God as, oh, well, I need a knife preserver, so I'm going back to him. See God as your cosmic pleasure dispenser just to serve you at your need. James is actually going to scold us in chapter 4 by how we go wrong all the time because we're driven by our passions. I'm bad and as a kid and I sneak out, you know, a bed and I go take cookies out of the cookie jar and my mom happens to walk into the kitchen. And I begin to pray for God, for wisdom about where to hide. <laughs> I'm being double-minded, see? Half the time I'm cookie monster, half the time I'm Christian. <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. Or it's like loving God, but also loving money and fun. On one hand, I have aspirations for Christ. Oh, I want to serve him. But deep down, my soul wants to have its own way. There's a part of this world I'm just clinging to. If I love money and stuff alongside God, guess what? James says you shouldn't expect to receive anything. That's what I want us to see. That's what it means to doubt. But the good news is if I'm like the father of the little boy in Mark 9 and I crouch at Jesus, 
I believe, help my unbelief. This is the cry of faith that actually is putting a stake in the doubts that you do have. And faith, whether big or small, always gets the victory because it's not the size of the faith that matters. It's the size of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is faith? Faith is simply coming to Christ because you're helpless, because you're lacking, period. That's what faith is. Faith says, you're my God alone and I'm a needy child. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never, never cast out. John 6, 37. Faith sees our neediness. It goes to Christ alone. It says, here's how bad it is. I'm leaving it with you. You have enough faith, friend, when you turn helplessly to Christ. Dead stop. You have enough faith when you turn helplessly to Christ. You are asking in faith when you say this. Jesus, please enter into this situation in my life and give me wisdom in how to deal with it and how to understand it. It's simply to open the door of your life when Jesus is knocking and say, enter into all my helplessness and show me your power. Show me who I'm to be in this. And believe that Jesus is doing something the minute you begin to ask for it, even if you're not seeing an answer to your prayer. It's actually what Joni Erickson Tata now understands. It took her a while to get her vision goggles focused in to understand her life as a paraplegic. In the years immediately following her injury, she writes about how her favorite Bible passage was John 5, verses 2 to 9, she had them memorized, where Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda, where you have a lame man. And Jesus asks him, do you want to be made well? The man says, well, if only someone would put me in the water. And Jesus then tells this man to rise, take up his bed, and walk, and he's healed. Joni said again and again, she'd always ask her friends, what do you want us to read to you this passage? Because she would then imagine herself in this scene. Wait for Jesus to show up. And she would pray that she would be the person that God would see this time, that Jesus would see her, but Jesus always went to someone else. Jesus wouldn't heal her. And she found herself in constant despair. 30 years later, she went on a trip with her husband, Ken, to Jerusalem. And he left to go see if he could find a little water where the pool of Bethesda was. And as she thought about her life, looked down her legs, and she remembered her former famous favorite passage and how Jesus had said no to her healing. She realized at that moment that the trial was not removed so that she would love and need Jesus more. She writes this. She realized at that moment, she says, God engineered the circumstances. He used them to prove himself as well as my loyalty. Not everyone had this privilege. I felt that there were only a few people God cared for in such a special way that he would trust them with this kind of experience. This understanding left me relaxed and comfortable as I relied on his love, exercising newly learned trust. I saw that my injury was not a tragedy, but a gift God was using to help conform me to the image of Christ, something that would be my ultimate satisfaction, happiness, even joy. God gave her over the course of that time, and especially at that moment, the wisdom to see the greater healing that he had been performing on her soul all along. 
And it was at that time that her husband showed up with a handful of water from the pool. <laughs> and she laughed and she said she cried because she saw at that moment Jesus had given her a greater joy by means of that trial. And she now had the wisdom to see her situation in a whole new way. And she was so thankful for it. As am I, because I read her work a lot. And I have been so encouraged by her testimony she has impacted so many Christians throughout the world, and especially those who found themselves in trial. So I want to end with this question. What would happen if God answered every prayer just how you wanted it? Things would probably go very bad because you're not as wise as God. Plus it would mean that you'd think you were the center of the universe and not God. This is why we should first ask for God's wisdom so that we can get with his program better because he has the better program. So let us pray for wisdom so we can see how he is at work even now in us and in our world. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we want to give you our thanks and praise that wisdom became a person in our Lord Jesus Christ who walked this earth with us. How we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have showed us through your own trials how you endured them for us, for the joy set before you. And we are that joy that you long to be with us and that you took up your cross. And we ask and pray right now, as we all have, will walk out of here with crosses that we're called to endure throughout the week, that you will help us to count it all joy. And also, will you give us that wisdom so that we can begin to understand how you're at work in us and in our world. Father, uh, there's so many challenges that we face. There's so much despair in our midst. I ask and pray that you'll help us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves so that we might show forth the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, even in our own walk. And I ask and pray, Father, that you will continue just to, to help us to trust in you, even in the most difficult times, knowing that you love us and you care for us. And we see that in Jesus, who loved us more and better than anyone ever has. And we thank you for him. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.